Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Frame Rate, the podcast where we rate frames. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Swaim, and tragically, for the first time in Frame Rate history, Abe couldn't make it. I'm without my Abe. I'm cleft in twain. I'm like a gay Perry with no Harry. Um, so, you know, uh, we're sorry to say it. I just had to kind of scramble and find anyone I could who was available. Um, but I am happy we managed to, to get a guest for the episode, which covers the 2005 film Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And with me here to do so is the writer and director of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Mr. Shane Black. Hi. Hi. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, thanks for having thanks me. Thanks for having me and uh, for reminding me that that was something uh, that was part of my life a while ago. Yeah. That Does that happen? Does it fade? <laughs> You know, it's nothing really fades because one of the great things about being involved in film is if you like the film, it plays while you sleep. Mm. So you wake up in the night, you turn, oh, sh there's that thing, and it's always there. Yeah. So hopefully it, it extends with beyond, you know, whatever I'm feeling today, what I felt then is still out there playing uh, to people who may or may not enjoy it. That actually launches me into a question I didn't have as my first question, but I'll jump right to it. Um, something that really struck me watching it in preparation for this is there's a scene where there's a monologue, I believe Harmony gives the lines, about art, or I'm sorry, no, it's Harry narrating about Harmony, how the art no longer belongs to the creator, it belongs to her. And I, did, I wanted to ask you about that. Do you agree with that? Like, did you put that in because that's how you feel? Do you think the audience, it's theirs now? Yeah, I I think that um, ultimately you don't you you stare at the wall, and um, if you're smart, you don't just sit there. You get up and walk around. You wait for whatever muse to descend and whatever thoughts to to sort of come together. And and uh, but whatever slice it is, you're serving up based on mm -hmm. a you know sort of distillation of all these thoughts and all these random things. Whatever comes into your head, that is the slice you offer to the to the world. Um, what they make of it has very little to do with what I intended. <laughs> sure. But sometimes they'll tell me something uh, that I didn't know I knew. Or maybe I was thinking it when I worked on it, but I never really acknowledged it until someone else points out to me, did you know that there's this, this, and this that recur throughout the thing? Yeah. Like, oh, God, maybe I was doing that. So subconscious to me is everything. Sure. And I don't, I think the subconscious uh, sort of assembles and corrals uh a creative chunk. Yeah. And then other people sort of take it and pick it apart for what it's worth. But I'm as interested in their reactions as I am in, you know, hearing my own sort of tired recitation of what it is I originally intended. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely picked a lot of stuff out that I had the thought of if it was intentional or not. And when you're crafting a story, uh, I mean, I'm sitting in your place that has books exactly like the Johnny Gossamer novels yeah. everywhere. So... How much are you taking from your life? How much do you come at it from? Because you're also like a lot of genre artists. Did you come at this knowing you wanted to do a noir and surveying all the noir tropes and deciding which to play with? How do you attack it first? How'd this come to you? Um, yeah, I think one of the advantages that I have when I work on something in this genre mm -hmm. is it's kind of a, there's a familiarity with the vernacular. So I'm not struggling to find the first joke, if you want to use a, a comedian sure. sort of analogy. I'm, I'm struggling to find the spin on the joke. Yeah. Because I already know these things backwards and forwards. And they're the ones that interest me. Um, mm -hmm. 
the idea of a detective story with all the interrelating parts yeah. and the through line of a character that sort of goes through with his own style of Western justice and unearths all the secrets at the end that all the family skeletons come tumbling out of the closets. He burns down the house in typical Western fashion, says, you live, you get punished, you yeah. die. I'm hiding this evidence to spare you, and I'm walking away with the house in flames. Mm-hmm. And so those shapes reside in virtually every nook and cranny of the house here. Yeah, uh, yeah. So... I just pluck one. Um, in fact, what I did with both the nice guys and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was there's this old... They seem like spiritually related in oh, some yeah. way. Oh, yeah. I think so, don't you? Yeah, definitely. And there's a, a pulp writer named uh, Davis Dresser wrote under the name of Brett Halliday. Okay. And so what I'd do is I'd go back in his books, and I did it for both of them, pick a clue I liked, mm-hmm. option the book for Peanuts, just use the clue... Mm-hmm. And then put my characters in it. So I, I was doing homage to already saying, I love this so much. I am proud of the fact that I could extend the tradition of yeah. the things which, form, which I read when I was literally 11 years old, you know. Yeah, but creating this overarching meta aspect also adds, it, it synergizes so well because noir is already about how many connections and twists and turns can we plug in. And I love that Kiss Kiss Bang Bang structure sort of freed you up to uh, disjoint time or even reality or the narrative if you want to mm-hmm. delay evidence, have evidence come early. Like you have Kiss Kiss Bang Bang has this sort of God overview that allows you to do so much that I think synergizes well with what noir already is. Yeah, uh, but it's a clumsy God. It's a clumsy narrator. Yeah, definitely. You know, I which mean, is what I like. We literally have two instances of the classic film strip breaking, right. which would only be, I think, even makes sense in half of theaters now. It would have to be a digital screen, like, yeah. glitching out. Um, it's unfortunate. Well, it's not unfortunate. It's just what is. It's just time goes on. Sure. Did you, uh, did you always know you wanted it to be playing with the fourth wall continuously? Was that, like, the spark yeah, of the idea for you? Is what if much. I brought that to noir? Well, I, yeah, because I wanted to sort of sum up a, diff- a lot of different noir things that I... Influences that had uh, yeah. shaped me when I was a kid. Mostly, uh, Raymond Chandler. I was going to say, who's your favorite PI? Then? Well, yeah, <laughs> I structured it so that it's based on roughly chapters in which each chapter of which has an element that relates to a, the title of a Raymond Chandler book. Oh, awesome! So you have the lady in the lake that. is in our story. Okay. Uh, I didn't do the high window, mm-hmm. but uh, farewell, my lovely is in our story. You know. Yeah. Uh, the trouble is goodbye. my business. Yeah. Yeah. So, basically, it's, it's my tribute to, uh, to Raymond Chandler as a writer. Now, I, I wrote it. I didn't, you know, I intended to direct it, but uh, on the page, I, I think, was where I struggled the most. So, once, once you get all those meta aspects, because that's, that's tough to do, breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. But I studied theater. I liked theater more than film growing up, okay. in a way. Yeah. So... The idea of playing with conventions when in a theater you don't have the ability to focus on things and right, highlight right. them. You just you have to play with an audience's sensibilities by being overly theatrical, mm. by mixing it up, by juggling your tomatoes. Right. And so I said, this is I'm just going to juggle tomatoes here, <laughs> throw shit at the wall, see what sticks. And it took me a long time to do that on the page, and then directing was easy. Did you have a cast in mind while you were writing? 
Or Absolutely not. No. Okay. So you just write with the characters in your brain. Yeah. As like, yeah, I like that. Uh, in that case, so breaking down character work, I definitely want to get into the directing side because that's fascinating to me. But um, Gay Perry is an interesting character for even 2005 because I yeah. think it would even, and I was wondering, did you always know you wanted to play with like an ultra masculine gay character? Was Absolutely. that in there from the beginning? If you're, if you're playing with Western tropes, yeah. which Tarantino does all the time, by the way. The and new, LA and yeah, like and bringing LA. In LA. So, you know, a lot of my friends, um, especially being from a theater background, were very, very gay. Yeah. And yet in movies, you would see portrayals of gay characters, and they're too often like, you know, these weaselly men. <laughs> right. Please don't hit me. I'll tell you everything. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, so it was more interesting to me to allow the gay character, who is unapologetically gay, by the way. He's very gay. That's, he hybridizes almost <laughs> aggressive <clears throat> what is normally considered like cis masculinity with yeah. gay it's fuck you <clears throat> i'm gay i'm gonna punch you in the jaw now yeah. I, yeah and i thought that was fun and i thought it was appropriate and i um you know i think we all, and we all have all these parts in it if i can write a gay character there's a part of me that's gay if i can write sure. a woman character there's a part of me that's a woman and they just fight and war in there so yeah. to exercise uh, all those different muscles is, mm -hmm. is fun and not just write about me um, so you don't feel that Harry is a cipher for you, or and you don't play that game in no, your films? No, I don't. Okay, I don't. Harry is uh, Harry is a, is a kind of a, you know all my. It's an assembly of all the various sort of sad sack investigative reporter stories I used sure. to read. You know when I would read the Fletch books or this or that. There's always a very intrepid. Uh, very ins insightful, but ultimately sort of self-hating and even cowardly protagonist right. who has to overcome and somehow generate, somehow live up to the role of, you know, step into the myth in a way of the private eye. That's what the idea was. Mm -hmm. Joseph Campbell tells yeah. a story about a family. They're out for a drive. Save the cricket. <laughs> you got to do your work. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a big Campbell fan, but this one story... Yeah. He said the, the family's driving and they see a guy hanging off a cliff by a, a branch. He's going to fall. And the father jumps out of his car mm -hmm. and runs over and goes down the hillside, stumbling. The dirt is crumbling under him and he sort of grabs the guy and hauls him, nearly gets them both killed. And the question posed is, well, why would a man seeing a total stranger risk everything, including leaving his family fatherless, just mm -hmm. to jump in on a moment's notice within seconds of seeing a total stranger and want to save that man above all else. Yeah. And his notion was, well, he saw an unfinished tapestry, that there's a myth old as time of the rescuer and the person in peril, and the rescuer was missing. Mm -hmm. And it was so compelling to fill the piece that was missing, Yeah. to respond to, to the call roles. of that myth, that he had to jump in and, and rise to the occasion and say, I'm sorry, honey, I love you, but there's a myth calling me. And in a sense, almost like, right now I have to prove that true selfless goodness is possible in the universe, so I'm going right. to go do that right now. And yeah. it kicks in at the most unlikely times with the most cowardly people. Mm -hmm. And so my idea was that, okay, this guy has to step in. By the end, he becomes magic. He can't handle a gun. He's never right. killed before. But at the end, for five seconds, he channels yeah. that action hero that, that was previously only existing in these books about Johnny Gossamer. Mm-hmm. Which is the character. Have that, you seen yeah. Adaptation, Charlie Kaufman's? Uh, no. I feel like structurally it owes a little bit to this because there is that, there's that sense that the narrator almost takes increasing control in Act 3 
And I like the great scene where Abe Lincoln and Elvis are alive because Perry's alive, so why the fuck not? And now you're like, well, then, is this really happening? And it does the same thing, you know, that Breck tried to do and a lot of theater does where you're like, this is a movie, you know, like at the end of the day, uh, I can do anything because this didn't happen. Right. It's a fairy tale. Yeah. And and we do that, too. There's a lot of knights and castles and myths in the story. Mm -hmm. Even the football team, when he was a teenager in school was the knights yeah yeah the white knights the white knights and <laughs> again different connotation today but he's always talking about you know saving damsels and yeah. uh, it's it's about filling myths the myth of the western hero the myth of the private eye the myth of the knight in shining armor his armor is very tarnished yeah and he's a little rusty but ultimately it's it's what it means to be a male hero and it's filled also with the female who's smarter than both of them right and the toughest guy, ostensibly, who is a gay man. Mm-hmm. So it's, a try, it's trying to just sort of do this gender-fluid thing of what is tough. Right. Was there, speaking of just intentionality, was him seeking harmony, was that intentional? That little wink there? Which one? Like, thematically. <laughs> uh, seeking. He's seeking harmony. You know, oh, in his I life, see. he needs balance. Was that a thing? No, but now it <laughs> All is. Right. Yeah, exactly. See, see, once again. That's what's great about it. Yeah, maybe. So you mentioned male and masculinity. I definitely wanted to get into that. I was wondering, was like centering many of the themes around what does it mean to be tough, male or female, but in the traditionally masculine sense, yeah. like bravado and bravery and peril and shit. Um, is that because, like, is that theme precious and important to you in life or is it more that well that's the main theme of like 80 percent of the things this is an homage to therefore it has to come up i i think ultimately um finding your moral center and walking a street of temptation is sort of the the chandler-esque he talks about the lone knight on the the mean streets of Mm -hmm. los angeles the one sort of incorruptible but not untemptable individual Mm. And so I wanted to take a really fallible guy like Harry, and it's about you know, the idea of bravery. Where do you find it? What does it take to... Uh, a lot of his, his seemingly brave acts he kind of stumbles into. Right. Or they're accidents, you know. But by the end, this guy who was a magician as a kid, who mm-hmm. used to like stand and do tricks for the locals actually pulls off a magic trick of Captain summoning the... fucking magic. Yeah. <laughs> whatever bravery yeah. he lacks, whatever inability to sort of marshal his resources and finish anything in his life without walking, without just cut and running. Yeah. Well, she asks for a magic trick at the end. Mm-hmm. He's dying. He's on the ground. He can barely stand. And she says, can I have a magic trick, please? And he goes, oh, shit, I got to fill this myth. Yeah. I got to do this. And he gets up and for five seconds effortlessly says, you bang, 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 done. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it reminds me so much of how we all get in our own way. And there's these moments where the stakes are so high, you forget to fuck yourself up and think about it. Exactly. And then you can pull off the miraculous. Yeah. When we channel something greater than ourselves, and to me, the private eye Mm-hmm. as portrayed, as summoned, as channeled by the people like Ross MacDonald and Raymond Chandler and all my favorite yeah. authors. You know, he has various male quirks and there's misogyny in this throughout the years, but the basis of it is still something bigger than all of us, something pure. 
Yeah. I also, the private eye is so unique and distinct from the superhero as like, yeah, I mean, I tie these things back to, you know, Norse and Greek mythology. I feel like today we have these stories that are so iconic that they take on that same dimension. That's like you say, it's the myth that gives you the shape of what you could aspire to be, certain traits. And uh, I think the interesting dichotomy there, especially since you've also done superhero work, is the superhero knows they're going to get credit, wants credit, and often is like fine with it, revels in it. Iron Man ends with, I I am Iron Man. Uh, Whereas in this movie, Robert Downey would never, you know, beg for credit at the end. And I think the private eye, what's so unique and appealing to me about the private eye is they're in hell and they know they're only going to get 20 bucks a day plus expenses or whatever. Yeah. It's to do what's right. And, you know, it boils yeah, down it, to sim- that's what simple things. The private eye, I've never really liked the ones that are rich. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always the guy who... There's this drama which plays out in almost operatic stakes, but it's still a job he took on for 50 bucks a day or whatever. Right. Now it's probably 500. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of it, he's done his job well. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. And he happens to have been also a judge, an avenger, uh, an exposer of, you know, corruption and injustice. But really, it was, it's about, you know, I'll do this for 200 a day plus expenses. There's a great yeah. line in the movie Night Moves where he says what he costs. And she looks at him and he says, you can get cheaper. <laughs> and she says, can I get better? Yeah. And he sort of shrugs. Yeah. You're good at your job. That's why uh, the movies that I love are not movies about guys who are necessarily superheroes. They're just guys who are really good at what they do. Mm -hmm. Or women, in the case of, say, Long Kiss Goodnight or Harmony, who are just really good, even inadvertently, at what they do. They can't turn off something that is in them that possesses uh, a skill you and I don't have. (laughs) Sure. And they can be fucked up in every other way. They try to drown it with a gallon of alcohol or hatred, -hatred. self-hatred. But it's still in there, begging the question of, you know, get on your feet. What do we, you know, how do we do this thing? Because I still need to know the answer and ask the next question here. Yeah. Well, wow. Now hearing that, I realized that long kiss, good night. That makes so much more sense now. You're like pushing it to the point of, look, you could have the memories of learning those skills taken out, but they're still a part of you and they can be reignited. That's really cool to put it sort of in that context. Is it common for... Uh, because in this, I feel like, for example, Perry is literally the PI, but a great twist in the movie is that he works for the bad guy and he's not a bad guy, but he's not a great guy. He's willing to work for bad guys up to an extent. And Harry is literally not a PI, but is on the case. And then together you sort of think of them as the PI, whereas Raymond Chandler, unless I'm wrong, because you're more well-versed on this, was that playing with a trope or are there a lot of... Uh, like pulp novels where it's two guys no, where it's, it's buddies. A, that's mostly just the fact that in a film where it's a little bit harder to uh, you, you can't go inside the character's head and offer that wonderful sort of Oh, you can't, Shane? Commentary. You can't go in the character's head? <laughs> uh, well, I can, but you know, it, it's much better. And also there's a, a warmth which I think ought really to be in these sort of harsh stories. And the warmth comes from a friendship that evolves from a guy who's pretty, fairly mildly homophobic when he first meets Perry. <laughs> right, right. Not, doesn't know what to make of this Hollywood landscape and all these, you know, 
he tries to be a white knight with some woman at a party and he gets the tar beat out of him. Yeah. And then this gay guy comes over and helps him up. And But the friendship that evolves between the two of them is the warmth of it. Yeah. Um, and so I think you need the two characters, or I needed them, and I needed to have a, a love interest for him. And I just wanted her to be so much smarter than him. <laughs> sure, yeah. You know. Well, she, I love then Act 3 that's almost casually that they're like, well, where's Harmony? Well, she solved the case, so she left. <laughs> that's yeah. a great maneuver. And she just doesn't really care. She just wants to be an actor. Yeah. But if she cared, she could have solved the case. She just didn't. She was busy, like, trying to get to a, you know, a party because she had to play a Santa girl. Right. Um, what led to the decision to, at the end, sort of pull back and say that the sister did actually kill herself, which in the context of the movie makes it like there's this sort of Chinatown-esque mm -hmm. daddy issues plot and there was like a switcheroo that was clever. And then at the end, you decide to take it back and go sort of, it wasn't as clean as you thought. It was kind of yeah. messier than you thought. It's that sometimes all the things that we do, you know, all the effort we go to to prove something, some premise which we desperately wish to be true, mm -hmm. the effort has to be worth it just for itself because the premise may turn out to be false. What we did still stands, but by the way, you didn't avenge her. In fact, and also right. it goes back to a sadness. Uh, I, wanted, I, I wanted a bitter sweetness at the end because my favorite, one of my favorite scenes is when Val Kilmer goes to the father who... We assume abused oh, this yeah. girl. Oh yeah, and hits him, and he says, "Oh, big tough guy." He goes, yeah, big tough guy, <laughs> yeah. and walks out of the room after basically slugging an old man for abusing his daughter thirty years ago. Right. Um, so it was—it's all about you know everything I could compile in my head from Private Eye stories. Ross McDonald was more about the familial aspect of horrible secrets within families. Mm -hmm. Uh, Raymond Chandler was more about the sort of Western hero of a private eye. But even then, if you look at The Big Sleep, mm -hmm. you know, he brushes up against gangsters. Yeah. But in the end, it's the crazy daughter who felt jilted and buried her lover in a lake. And she wants to play this little game with a gun that she used to play when she was a kid, you know. And yeah. it's the psycho family dynamic yeah. that comes back. So I just wanted to end with a bittersweet family notion. Uh, that's true. I can't, it would have sort of not felt true to noir if, I can't think of any noir where they're like, everything is good. What a good ending. Um, but personally, I did, I did like that Perry lived, so thank you. I feel like, I feel like you threaded it just right. Like, there was a bittersweetness, but you didn't, you know, it would be such a traditional move to go like, well, one of the two guys dies. There's your sad ending. Yeah. Yeah. It was a wonderful time that we had because no one. We also didn't know what we couldn't do. You know, we, we some days we wouldn't even make our days. We thought, shit, are we going to finish this movie? But it, it sort of came together in an interesting way. I was just all in. Uh -huh. I was green. It never occurred to me that you couldn't do things or that they wouldn't <laughs> yeah. work out. Right, or that the project could fail and you'd be out of scenes or not have enough scenes or what. That so okay. Since you mentioned it, I feel like it's not rude to ask. The very end capper scene where it's almost through like a webcam or something where they're like, and then this happened. Was that always intended as the final scene? Because the like gearhead in me wondered if that was something where 
you watched a cut and felt like it still needed the final beat yeah. of them being buddies. We, we had one and a half days of reshoots. Okay. Um, it was all we could afford, but we were thankful to have it. Sure, yeah. And we saved a lot of the inserts, like people riding buses out to California and things like that. Okay. But one of the things, the original ending was supposed to be, you know, she says, who is it that says in the movie uh, something about uh, I woke up when the street lights came on? I forget. Anyway. It oh, yeah. And later there's a, uh, I have neon sickness. My the, mom said I have neon disease. sickness, yeah, neon I, disease. I always wake up when the street lights come on. And then there's an hour later, that sequence of shots where you're like, is Harry going to wake up in time? Something's at stake. Yeah. Neon lights come on, his eyes pop open. Well, we did a similar thing at the end, but mm -hmm. it felt a little muted. Okay. And so it occurred to me, look, this doesn't need a typical movie ending of just riding off and you know seeing the streetlights come on as they all go off together. The city. Yeah. yeah. It, <laughs> it, needs, it needs Robert Downey and Val Kilmer. Mm -hmm. Because I realized anything I could devise, which was a clever, you know, sort of op or ending frame for this, yeah. is not going to be as entertaining or captivating as what they can do when they get together. So, uh, you know, this and it's a trick. You can do almost everything right for ninety minutes of a movie, and if in the last ten minutes you don't get it, people don't like the movie. Yeah. But if you do everything wrong, and the last ten minutes kick ass. People walk out, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, 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 You won't get, like, best movie I ever saw, but they'll be like, I actually thought it was pretty good. So you gotta, <laughs> you gotta stick the ending. Yeah. And so I called on them and said, guys, let's just do something with the two of you. We're chemistry. It and just pushes it. In the test audience, they all applauded those two at the end. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so it did evolve. Yeah, let's switch over to sort of the directing thing and, and set experience. Did you, this was your at least feature directorial debut, right? Uh, period. You, period, okay. Yeah. Did you direct theater? Oh, I just, yeah, college plays. I okay. Mean, yeah, college and, and nothing, no. Yeah, so your ambition was to write. That's your jam. You always wanted to write. Um, yeah. What led to the decision to direct it when you realized, oh, I'm also going to be directing a feature film was that an emotional experience was it thrilling or a hassle you'd rather not have to do like would you rather just send the script in how did you come to directing well i'd been here's here's the problem with uh with just being a writer is you do a lot of work and ultimately you know the, the director takes the work and they go off and maybe you visit the set maybe you don't but you're back to square one the blank page is the most terrifying thing in the world right so you do all the work, and your reward is you get to do it again. And <laughs> as opposed to this social experience, which you have the opportunity as a director, also I'd see certain choices in movies that were directed by other people I'd written, and I thought, well, I... I knew that was part of it. Every writer is a control <laughs> freak. I'm like, it's that they kept fucking it up, right? <laughs> it's not that it was fucked up. It's just there's certain things like, no, that, that's not how that gag plays. The yeah, comedy especially. is So you're like, you did the emphasis on the wrong word, and it's wrong now. <laughs> or, or the editor fell so in love with a bunch of close-ups that an action scene which should have played as a proceeding right. a master shot which would have worked really well, he cuts it up into a million pieces yeah. because he has the pieces. And that's his job, and he enjoys that. <laughs> yeah, but it, you, know, you realize that it's not just about you know, raking the stew of what 
the current action movie tropes are. It's it's determining what you want to feel about each scene. And I was getting it right in the films I'd written, about 80%, and then there's 20%, which the director's done, which I thought, well, he's very skillful, but yeah, I think I wanted that different. As far as like emotional tone or what it evokes? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's it's funny because as I go on directing, I find out like Dick Donner turns out to be the guy whose style I most sort of emulate. And, you know, I was a little disappointed in the direction Lethal Weapon series took. It was mm-hmm. much too touchy-feely, much too fuzzy. But somehow, learning from Dick Donner after, it's 30 years ago, and yet his lessons st- stick in my head. And so okay. I thought, well, I know a bit. I've watched this. Let's try and see if I can't translate uh, a more visceral, more personal. And the, when they left me alone on that film, I thought it came out pretty well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we were left alone on the nice guys. Yeah. You know? And uh, I started to think, like, well, you know, getting left alone is pretty cool. Yeah. Do you get to do that as often as you'd like? Do you I've play only, that game where you're like, one for you, one for me? What? I've only done a few films. Um, Iron Man... Of course, you're not going to get left alone, but the, oh, yeah. the good news is those people are really smart. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Marvel knows how to make a Marvel movie, boy. Yeah. yeah. And so there's a point at which, you know, I was frustrated at one point with some changes they wanted, and uh, Joss Whedon stopped <laughs> Does by. he have to be iron? No, but actually, one of the major changes, which I called out, was that they didn't want any, uh, they wanted to limit the women in the film. Now, they wouldn't do that today. Right. But at the time, the New York corporate office was sort of coming down on Feige, who didn't want to do it. But they said, just get Rebecca Hall out of the movie. No one's going to buy that toy, you know. Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, so I mentioned that, and it went on TV and stuff. But I didn't mean to cause any problems for Marvel, Sure. the people I worked with, because they were smart as hell. And Joss said to me, trust the machine at some point. He says, I know, I know you're, you're nitpicking little things. You're getting upset over trifles. And, you know, you want to recut this or that. Just let the machine carry you a bit. <laughs> sure. He would know. Now, yeah. subsequently, I heard he had his own gripes. I've heard some gripes in the t- but, Twitter sphere from Joss. Yeah. But look at how blessed I am. Look at how I've gotten to learn from Kevin Feige, from yeah. uh, Victoria Alonso, Lou D'Esposito, Stephen Broussard over at Marvel, all their people that directed their films, John Favreau, Robert Downey, and Joss Whedon. Yeah. The Marvel Universe. Yeah, has, Favreau can direct the shit out of a movie. <laughs> they have been so good to me. I, yeah. I'm truly blessed. James L. Brooks as a mentor. Oh, wow. Awesome. Who I, yeah. I wrote Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in his office. Oh, really? He just gave me an office the to Brooks write. The Brooks suite. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so do you have, would, would you say you have any kind of theory of directing or when you showed up on day one where you're like, I'm going to be the theater type director who draws them through exercises. I'm going to be the, I need to focus on the frame. Or were you like, I'll see what happens. <laughs> I, I was, at first I was just very imagistic. I was thinking more of just the look of things and, uh, uh-huh. and trying to um, channel a noir feel uh, all these you know, swirls and we had storyboards of swirling lights that resolved into 
Christmas lights reflected in someone stirring a cup of coffee, which sure. pulled back in the yeah. coffee. You know, and he's at a cheap diner with Christmas lights outside. Nice. That sort of thing. Um, lonely Some... street lights with people in the distance walking in and out of darkness and chiaroscuro backgrounds mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, I was very much into the stage craft of it. And then yeah. I started to let go a little bit of that. When the performers came on board, I thought, you know what? I can I could sort of force all these you know, noir type shots on this thing, but, you know, just get the faces saying the words. I could George (laughs) Lucas this thing if I want. Yeah, and it became, I I also trusted Michael Barrett, our our cinematographer, because he instantly Mm -hmm. got it. He said, look, this is the look you want, right? And we looked at books together. He says, I'll give you this. I can't do all these elaborate crane shots you want because we have (laughs) three crane days, you know, or maybe two crane days. But what I can do is work with you to establish a, a feel that is distinctive and colorful. And the one thing I loved about what he said was, we'll, I want the film to be colorful, but we can suck out the intensity of the color. So let's okay. a film with lots of color, but desaturated color. And you were on board with that? That didn't bug you as a noir fan? No, you know, in that's, fact... That's, that's a twist on visual noir visual, yeah. Yeah, I was... I don't like... Um, I don't like the, the the drab sort of washed look sure. of a lot of things. Like uh, <clears throat> there was a thing they used to do called pre-flashing, where okay. if you look at Three Kings, they overexposed <laughs> the film on purpose. We've covered it, yeah, yeah. on and, the show. You know, I, I like things that are lush. Yeah, but I also wanted um, I wanted the beauty of the city at Christmas, but I also wanted a noir flavor and a kind of a sad, lonely echo yeah. to it. And I think Michael was very good at helping me do that. For yeah. sure. He had great ideas. I got to ask, have you met David O. Russell? I have not. Okay. I just hear that he's a legendary maniac. <laughs> I'm always looking for David O. Russell stories. But uh, I, uh, yeah, personally, Three Kings I have a soft spot for. But <laughs> again, because I think the same reason I love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang so much is um, all my favorite filmmakers, like you said live and breathe certain sets of tropes and they're not going to give you... I feel like so many movies comfortably give us, which we need. Myths need to be repeated and refreshed. But gosh, I love the people who are willing to push it to the next level and go like, now this is for the people who already have these tropes under their belt. Mm -hmm. Let's play with that. Um, And you were lucky to have a cast where I feel like this cast, you literally could say, like, just do the scene really good. And, yeah. and even if you only had that, they'd knock it out of the park. Um, how was, just as someone who has directed various things, uh, it immediately jumped out to me. How was directing the flashback scene with all the kids? Was, is, was that like a nightmare day on set? Wrangling all the kids in the magician scene? Oh, no, not at all. Okay, we've not had terrible all. luck with that. No. You know, in fact... Uh you know, you just you, we didn't have a lot of time to develop. So we had to tell a story very economically by just a couple shots in flashback to right. set up. So it was very easy to get a, a kid actress you liked and just do selected shots. If we'd had to um, work with kids on a daily basis, that is tough. Um, <laughs> yeah. But once again, I've been lucky with kids. And the, the sure. Casting has been... You know, I look a lot better. Uh, my work looks a lot better than probably the, uh, befits my actual talent level because of the casts that I've been favored with, that I've managed to, you know, uh, 
that I, like I said, I'm just blessed. I'm the luckiest guy in Hollywood um, in terms of what I've been allowed to do and what's come off and what's succeeded. And, you know, I don't need uh, billions of dollars every time sure. I set foot. Yeah. I just, I'm pleased with the results for the most part. That's, it's awesome to hear that from the upper echelon people that you admire. Uh, yeah, so maybe if I get there someday, I'll be happy. Um, no, you won't be happy. Oh, good. That's good to hear, too. As long as the world is as I thought. Um, but what I did want to ask, just weird things that jump out to me about directing, because I'm physically imagining you going through the process. The uh, scene with the recurring bit about, like, oh, that's Chechnya and Steven Seagal. Oh, that's... Yeah, yeah. Which uh, several American sitcoms have ripped Pesci. off yeah. that joke years later, by the way. That was a big thing in How I Met Your Mother. Um, did you cast people and then write the monikers or how did you go about um, searching for people that look exactly like what you wrote well that was the chanciest thing because we showed up at set and we had a very limited extras budget so mm -hmm. literally half hour before we shot that scene i had to run outside and just look at uh our basically our 30 extras and try to find in my head could that that's was that black kevin costner the mexican no. joe pesci yeah, yeah, yeah. over there i see and i but and the one guy I, I called over the AD. I said, what do you think? And I said, Native American Joe Pesci. That's it. And, um, and he says, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then everyone we told it to said, oh, my God. And so we got lucky with the X. changed this man's life forever now. His family wow. can't unsee it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, I also wanted to ask, directing-wise... Uh, how it was to work with Larry Miller because he's one of my favorite people of all time. Larry, Larry <laughs> yeah. was Larry was great. I, I specifically um, at the time he was my favorite uh, comedian. Right, and he had, you know, he'd done a there. few movies like The Naughty Professor and things mm -hmm. like that. And I just thought, uh, you know, I I wanted voices on set mm -hmm. that would say the lines, but not just necessarily stick to the lines that would bring something so that when we got together we could it would be like a I didn't want it to just sort of be a rote uh, recitation I wanted to come together every night with a feeling of like all right what are we doing here what can we add to this mm -hmm. and I knew we had that with Robert and I knew we had it with Val and then we got this wonderful girl Michelle Monaghan who out of 40 girls who auditioned, was the only one who just, the second she gave her audition, I called the producer and said, we got her. Oh, wow. Yeah. I said, come over. Come over here. <laughs> yeah. And there were a lot of bigger actresses at the time, people who'd done mm. much more work who came sure. in and just said, I thought, that's okay, but it's, what's missing? What's missing? These lines aren't playing. These lines aren't playing. Yeah. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm a bad writer, and that's why the lines aren't <laughs> playing. But then she came it's in and I thought, ah, oh, okay, all right. Yeah. She knew, um, you know, it's it's great when you find the actual person. Right. You know, you don't even, ha they don't have to play. You just, oh, wait a minute. You're that perfect person I tried to write, except I couldn't quite get it. And now I see you and I realize what I should have written. That's Yeah. And I only have to change a little bit because you're already that. <laughs> feel that way about uh, Tim Oliphant in Deadwood. It feels like the world was built around what he just already evinces. Once again, one of my favorite actors yeah phenomenal yeah um all right well i'm not gonna keep you much longer any funny set stories or anything i like while we're talking about the physical let's you know let's uh we've been talking about theory and shit but any what are your favorite memories like what do you still hold on to from this experience 
Um, you know, being fired by the producer uh, a lot. <laughs> it was Multiple? Great. Over and over? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I would, I would just... <laughs> you said they left you alone. This is your definition. He did of leave me alone. alone. It was just me and him. Okay. <laughs> but he fired... On the last day... Uh, I, I needed a shot, and someone said, "Go." Val's not on set; he's at home. And someone said, "Go get him." And the uh, DP said, "You know, we don't really need Val. We can just use the double." Yeah. I said, "Okay." And the producer called me back and said, "Where's Val?" I said, "Well, we're shooting the double." He goes, "You're fired." I said, "Joe, it's the last day." <laughs> yeah. Because you think I can't fire you? And so <laughs> on the he, last day, yeah. he fired me with four hours left in the shoot, Jeez. and uh, but then I just waited, and we kept going. He calls back and says, "All right, all right, all right." That's the great thing about Joel, is you'll be fired multiple times, but it's delightful. Yeah, did you ever have a serious fear that it would mean your name was taken off or something? Or you're like, this Joel, is no, just Joel, what he does. Joel and I, you know, he's, it's a wonderfully uh, colorful relationship. At various periods in our 30-year history, he's called me, you know, a nothing, a nobody, you know. <laughs> really? You know. So classic. Dead in this town. Dead! <laughs> And then he's called me back to say, you know what? Uh, and the other great thing about Joel is he'll yell at you, and you'll think, oh, man. I'm a de and then he'll call you an hour later and just start telling you a joke. <laughs> like, uh, I, I find Joel to be a very interesting guy. He's yeah. very passionate. Hey, quiet. <laughs> That's my dog. That's dog's. Joel, actually. He heard his <laughs> name, and he's like, what the fuck? What the fuck? Uh, but he's he's... You know, what can you say, man? He's just, <laughs> yeah. he's made this journey so interesting. His volatility, his humor, but ultimately the reason I keep going back to Joel is, is his talent because mm -hmm. he knows this sort of material better than anybody, which is why as producer, uh, you know, if we're, if we're knocking heads with each other, it's in the interest of making a film that we're both going to like as yeah. opposed to a studio that may be saying something that's completely at odds. Right, right. With what I set out to do. Joel, on the other hand, completely understands he just disagrees about details or about whatever. details yeah. yeah but you know going back in time looking at the you know 48 hours everyone says lethal weapon well yeah. it really sort of changed that buddy dynamic no it didn't <laughs> it, was, it was 48 hours that did that mm -hmm. and lethal weapon you know is piggybacking on dirty harry bullet sure. 48 hours uh there's a whole lineage to which i oh great you know uh, props, the kids say. Yeah, I give it props. I, I, I have an allegiance to it and a responsibility, I think, to carry it on properly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think I'm going to stick to this sort of uh, crime detective genre a little bit longer. Yeah. And uh, maybe not so many CGI movies. So Okay. That's good news yeah. for my taste, but no, to each I'm, their own. One uh, thing I'm good at is is uh, working a shootout. Okay, sure. And uh, you know those types of really grounded action movies where it's not so CG driven. Um, I think there's 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 room for that. Is that experience like on Predator? Is that just is this experience of directing completely night and day different? It's really hard in an effects movie. You have to literally count shots in an effects movie, right, and, right, right, because they cost money, and uh, you know it. I, I much prefer being able to say, "Look, let's cover this," and I need this angle and this angle without someone saying you can do it in one. Mm -hmm. And it'll save one point four billion dollars. <laughs> yeah. No effects shots are anywhere from twenty to sixty thousand dollars each. Right. 
you know and uh so yeah but that means you have to stick to your storyboards and religiously yeah it's not as interesting to just shoot the shots that were planned six months ago and just set them up exactly like they are in the previs mm. it's more interesting to go on set and have the ability to play a little yeah for sure so are you uh forgive my ignorance if you have but if you haven't i wonder why you haven't written a series of pulp detective novels it um, seems like something you might have gotten around to at some point do you have a desire to i might but it's the same effort or more as oh, writing yeah. a screenplay, and then, <laughs> yeah. and then you don't get to, uh, and that's your livelihood that's already established. <laughs> well, it, and and you know, I want to I want to write something that then I can take and get on its feet and get some actors interested because I don't have a lot of time left. Sure, I'm what? in my, I'm oh, in my fifties. Right. Okay. I mean, look, <laughs> breaking news, frame rate. You just Shane Black has six months to live. There is a time when you're twenty when you don't feel the breath of mortality even a little bit. Sure. And there's a time when you're in your 50s where you get a sense it on the back of your neck. You can feel the breath. Yeah. You know, uh, you realize that you're closer to the end of your life than you are to the beginning, even though you're still plenty of time left, that from now on, it's going to be about your bad back getting worse. Right. It's going to be about sure. being tired more often and needing more naps, not fewer. I'm 34 and I'm already like, my knees are starting to go already? I didn't know this was going to happen quite this soon. Yeah. So, um, but once again, in my 50s, I can only look back and say how blessed I am to have been afforded the, just the gifts and uh, opportunities to be viable, at least offered a chance to make a film yeah. after 33 years in the business. Right. Quite I've, an accomplishment. Well, it's just luck. A lot of it is. And persistence <laughs> and reinventing. Um, now I have to reinvent again. I have to really look inside, see who I am, gauge myself, figure out uh, what I have left to give that's of use. Sure. Because being of use can be entertaining people, it can mm -hmm. be informing people, but it's also just marshalling what it is in you that you feel has power. And carrying on that mythic tradition, keeping the myths vibrating and with energy, you know? That's right. And so as long as the myth keeps calling to me, uh, no amount of laziness, uh, just sitting around, endlessly binging TV, eating tacos, you know, <laughs> there's a point at which the myth will call and say, look, you hate to tell you this, but you got to get back to the gym, get behind the keyboard and do something again. Yeah. And... Uh, fucking blank page man <laughs> yeah but that's the whole harry lockhart thing you know my tendency is entropy I, my tendency is to be lazy but when you know destiny you know kind of winks at you from the horizon you have to get on the horse and head out there yeah so it's like you could be doing this it's pretty cool yeah. uh well wonderful and of course uh now that you're locked into the series we'll be back next week shane and i to cover the live action jungle book movie <laughs> and you know it'll just go from there ad infinitum no but thanks again for being on the show first shane. i gotta go see it's it big thrill it, yeah thank you for having seen me it yet? Uh -oh. no i i don't get, i haven't gotten out. shots fired john favreau no 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 <laughs> trust me this guy john favreau is is my he's my guy man Seems he like was like a great dude wow Look at look at for, before we go. Sure, I come on board a movie that John Favreau was the did the first two of the franchise, and I'm directing the third one. 
Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, he's an actor in it. Right. He had every right and every opportunity to say to me, listen, jerkwad, here's what I would do. And instead, he just said, just put me somewhere, tell me what to say. Wow. He was the sweetest. It never occurred to me how odd it would be to be John Favreau on the set of Iron Man 3. That would rankle me. I, I had guess. never yeah. met a more honorable-seeming dude. Yeah. Uh, he just... Yeah, once again, I've been blessed to work with sweethearts and talents of unprecedented uh, proportions. So, And then I, I also work with you. So Yeah, there yeah. you go. There we go. The crown jewel of your 50s. <laughs> <laughs> I know you've been wanting that connect. I finally hooked you up. But uh, that's, that's an episode, guys. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll actually be back next time with, I believe, Scott Pilgrim versus the World with special guest... Daniel O'Brien. So we'll see you then. Thanks, guy. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!